this magnificent letter to the Hebrews, which I believe was written by Paul the Apostle, at least written by someone near to Paul who was quoting Paul and using Paul's teaching. This letter from the Apostle addresses Christians from a Jewish background. That is, they were Hebrews. During past decades, from the 1830s, they've been through opposition and oppression from Jewish authority. Oh, by the way, there are notes at the back and pens. Do go and get one if you need one. Write some notes. You might want a set of notes afterwards. I can tell you that. For decades, they've been on and off suffering pressure from the Jewish authorities because they believe it's in Jesus Messiah. That spread out from Jerusalem to the Jewish uh, scattering, the diaspora, through the synagogues and so on. But now, 30 years later, in the 1860s, they were about to face a greater trial from the Roman authorities under the thoroughly evil emperor Nero. And this letter was written to prepare them and strengthen them for that coming trial of faith. See, the temptation that was coming to them was this, to deny Jesus since Christian faith was about to be persecuted and take refuge back under Judaism because that was tolerated. So this letter compares and contrasts the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the main point, again and again, is just this one. Jesus is better. Here's what we've got to. We'll start into Hebrews 10. 10. The law, the Old Covenant, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect, make acceptable, make mature those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? That's the the sacrifices. If one sacrifice fixed it, then they'd stop doing it. Because the worshippers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. The law, the old covenant, had a shadow of the new covenant, which he here called the things to come. They've come now because Jesus has come. It wasn't the real deal. But in parts and in places of the old covenant, there was a foreshadowing, a picturing beforehand of Jesus the Messiah, his death, his resurrection, his priesthood, his kingship, and all the grace that he would bring to his people, to those who believe in him. But here it points out one very big difference between the Old Covenant and the New One. In the Old Covenant, you would be conscious of your sin and yet have to keep making offerings time after time, year after year, so you could be forgiven for your sin, but you could never be freed. You could never be released. You could never get a clean conscience. But in the New Covenant, Oh, in the new covenant. Well, we'll come to that in a minute. In those sacrifices, says the writer, there is a reminder of sins year by year. They might, they might not have a very lively conscience. They might think, I'm all right. But then the Day of Atonement comes around and said, oh, I suppose I'm a sinner after all because we're about to make sacrifice for my sin. So year by year, they were reminded of who they were. But it was impossible for the bulls, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Notice this consciousness of sins. Conscience. They live with a bad conscience, with a, a sense of weight, a burden of sin. And they couldn't be fully cleansed. There was no release. They couldn't know real freedom from guilt. The power of sin was unbroken. The chains were still wrapped around them. 
But there is better news to come. Jesus is better. Better covenant. He is Lord as well. (laughs) Therefore, when he, who's he? Jesus. When Jesus comes into the world, he says, and he's quoting from the Old Testament here, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then he said, then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, he said, behold, I've come to do your will. He, Jesus, takes away the first, all of that Old Testament ritual, those repeated sacrifices of animals, to establish the second, a new covenant, which is made by one sacrifice, himself. And he did it by his own will. By this will, you have been, we have been sanctified, made acceptable, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He's taken away the old covenant and established a new covenant. He's taken away our duty to keep God's law by fulfilling all the law in our place in himself. He's taken away offerings for sin and guilt by his once for all atoning, making peace with God, sacrifice. And he did all of this and much more that I could say in himself, by himself, in his own body, by his own will. It was his will, his obedience, his body, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. He's taken the punishment for our sin and broken the power of sin. So by his grace, we are freed from sin, freed from the law to serve God in newness of life. Jesus bled and died once for all. We've been sanctified by and through him once for all. At one moment in time, for all time. I want you to let those words fix in your mind. Once for all. Jesus has died and made reconciliation and made full forgiveness, brought full forgiveness, full redemption, full atonement. Once for all the children of God, listen to this folks, for all their sin, for all time. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it's finished. The price of forgiveness was paid. The power of sin was defeated. God is not waiting to accept us as his children. He accepts us completely in Jesus through the sacrifice. That is to say, the blood of Jesus. Blood always is a shorthand way of saying his sufferings and death. Under the old covenant, people could not be made perfect. They could never be made clean. But we are sanctified, made holy, once for all time by the sacrifice of Jesus himself. Our past can be put behind us. Our conscience can be cleansed. We already read it in Hebrews 9. 
If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. I'm not going to explain that again. How much more? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, listen to this, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Clean conscience. This is at the very heart and start of what it is to be a Christian. A cleansed conscience. To know, as John says, to know, little children, that your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. You know you have been forgiven. Our past is put away. And we come back to having a clean conscience and dealing with the attack of the enemy on your conscience, which is condemnation in a minute. Let's just finish reading Hebrews 10. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Day after day they went in, the priests brought their offerings, made the sacrifices. Year after year the blood was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. I talked about that some months ago. I haven't got time to go back into it today. Time after time after time after time. Going through the motions. But he, who's he? Jesus It's all about Jesus. Having offered one sacrifice for sins, listen to this, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until all his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. How many of you have got a footstool at home? Or maybe you just put your foot up on the other chair, I don't know. Isn't it nice to put your feet up? It's not quite that image. This is an enemy with my foot on him. Jesus, having made one sacrifice, doesn't do anything further to add to that. He doesn't need to add one thing. He now reigns until every enemy is under his feet. Do you hear the repetition there? Oh, sorry, I've got another verse to go. For by one offering, he has perfected for all those, all time, those who are sanctified. Now, if you are anywhere in that verse, you're everywhere in that verse. Let me explain it to you. If Jesus' sacrifice was for you, then these things are true. You have been made acceptable for all time, and you are going to be sanctified. There's no if about it. There's no maybe about it. He has made you fully acceptable by one sacrifice for all time. By one offering. Do you notice the repetition? Once for all. One sacrifice. One offering. For all time. For all time. How finished is the work of the cross finished? finished. finished. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus isn't doing anything further to add to it. He's, he's representing us before the Father. He's making intercession for us. He's our advocate. He's pleading for, for our help and our health and our, and, our, and, our, and, our, and our preservation. But he is not adding one thing to that. So let me say again. 
that some of our songs are very imaginative and very moving, but Jesus doesn't bleed anymore. It's done. It's done. One sacrifice for all time. He sat down. We are accepted by the once-for-all offering of Jesus, by his blood. Our conscience is cleansed by the once-for-all offering of Jesus. Again, by his blood. We are made holy, acceptable to the Father, loved by the Father, embraced by the Father, by the once-for-all offering of Jesus, by his blood. In fact, we are perfected for all time. Nothing will change that except us. And yet, we are to pursue holiness. We are sanctified and we're being sanctified. 2 Corinthians says this, Therefore, having these promises, blood, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. You can't perfect what you don't have, but you have it, so you work with it. Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. We don't pursue holiness to become acceptable. We pursue holiness because we are already counted and accepted by God as being holy. It's what he calls us, it's what he names us. We've been put in a position which is becoming our condition. I should have put it on the board, shouldn't I, for you? Shall I say it again to you? You've been put in a position which is becoming your condition. It's getting worked out in your life. Let me give you an analogy. Now, I, I, you know, I don't buy lottery tickets. You'd be surprised if I did, wouldn't you? But let's imagine someone comes into great wealth, supposing it's a lottery winner. Well, he now has to learn how to use and manage that wealth because lots of people win lotteries and it's all gone in no time at all. You've got to learn some wisdom as to how to manage what you've been given. And you may need help and advice to do that. You may need some people who know this stuff to give you some input as to how to manage this now. Well, guess what? We have been given all the grace of God. There is no more to be had. It's all ours. We're accepted as holy by the Lord. But we're learning how to live within that grace. We've got to learn this lifestyle of grace. We've got to learn how to make some decisions about what is right and good and appropriate to us as the children of God. We're not putting that on other people, people who aren't Christians. We're not saying, oh, well, why don't they live like that? It's not not our business how they live. They're accountable to God. But we have been given grace by God to make some better choices. But we do learn them. We don't learn how to live by the grace of God overnight. All sorts of things get changed, but there's a process of ongoing change. So we are sanctified, but we are still being sanctified. There's a process of sanctification that we learn to live in. The holy calling with which we have been called. We've been named it. We're now learning to live it. We are no longer the world's. We are no longer the devil's. We're not even our own. We are his. So let me spell out some more about holiness. Holiness is not self-effort. I've really got to get myself together. I've really got to improve. You know the expression, pulling yourself up by your bootlaces? 
Do you know where you end up? On your backside. Excuse my language. Don't do any good. The gospel is not a message of self-improvement. It's a message of help from heaven. Holiness is not self-effort. It's not religiosity, which means anything that sounds vaguely Christian, vaguely religious. Oh, I'll have a bit of that and a bit of that and a bit of that. That is not holiness. But a lot of it, stuff that passes as Christian is nonsense. It's not legalism. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Legalism, your do and don't list. You know, I can give you an example of that, you know. When I was in America, a friend of mine in America was preaching and he said, he said, people's idea of holiness in America kind of runs like this. He's a righteous dude. He don't drink, he don't smoke, he don't dance, and he don't cuss. That's a righteous man. Just a well-disciplined man. Legalism. Your don't list. It's usually a don't list rather than a do list. Have you noticed? Yes. Legalism is usually don'ts. Yes. We in our church don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. What do you do then? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What earthly good are you then? Give me some positives here. No, actually, legalism always produces Phariseeism. Do you know what that is? You look down on other people. I do better than they do because I don't drink and cuss and smoke. And, yeah. Whatever it is. Legalism always produces Phariseeism. You look down your crooked nose at other people. And holiness is not merely negative. It's not just denial. It's not just separating yourself from this, stopping doing that. You know, no movies, no dancing. No, 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 no. You're free to make those choices. You're free to adopt self-discipline for the glory of God. But you know what? Don't think that making, making all sorts of you know, separations makes you more holy. It might make you walk more securely as a Christian. That's fine. But you understand? You may need to do those things for your sake in the same way that some people need to forswear alcohol because they have a real weakness for alcohol. It's a personal decision, and you're very welcome to do that. God bless you. But don't think you make yourself more holy by your self-denial. Holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit as we cooperate with Him. He's producing works in us, yes, but more important than works, character. He's changing who we are. Holiness is relationship with God. It's an intimate relationship with a loving Father and a precious Lord Jesus and a wonderful helper called the Holy Spirit. It's relationship with God. It's Godward, not inward, not self-centered. The problem with a lot of, 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 of medieval and beforehand kind of idea of you know, holiness was that the saints kind of withdrew and you know, they, they looked within themselves and they're constantly kind of beating themselves up about stuff. You know, it's not inward. It's not self-reflecting. It focuses on God. Holiness is godly character. It's good fruit, not just, not just trying to cut off all the bad fruit. You know? Good fruit, godly character, fruitfulness. It's obedience and action. It's obedience to God and His Word. And it is built through positive disciplines of grace. Not just negative ones, positive disciplines of grace. 
Not just stop doing that, stop doing that. No. Read, study, pray, fellowship, give. Do the positive things that build the grace of God more and more into your very being. Holiness is a positive thing. In fact, when you meet somebody who's really holy, I tell you what, you want to just suck their presence in. Because they are sweet. There's something about them. Oh, my word. You just love being around them. I've met some dear old saints who've walked with Jesus many years in, in, in my, my time. And I'll tell you something, they, they, they move me. They, they, something about them, they know Jesus. like He's their best friend. I mean, it's not just talk, they do. They really do. And I'm, I'm, I'm moved. I, I just want to cry being around them. There's something about them. That's holiness. That's holiness. Let's come to the end of the argument in Hebrews. And I'm going to defeat even my quarter to it. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us after saying, this is the covenant. This is quoting from Jeremiah. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart. And on their mind, I will write them. He then says, oh, I wish, I'm not one for tattoos, but this, is what, this would be worth it. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no more offering because Jesus has made the final full offering for our forgiveness, our reconciliation, our acceptance, our sanctification, in other words, our being made holy. <clears throat> There's also a point here in verse 18 to the fact that while the temple in Jerusalem was still standing when this letter was written, it wasn't going to be there very long. Within that decade, it would be torn, burned and torn to the ground. And the Old Testament sacrifices would be put away forever. They'd already been put away by the sacrifice of Jesus himself. But the, but the, last, kind of, the last dregs would be closed. There would literally be no more offerings because Jesus is already off on the cross. Now I want you to look at those two great Old Testament prophecies from Jeremiah. We've already seen them in chapter 8. So Jeremiah quotes these. Hebrews, the apostle writing Hebrews quotes these two promises in chapter 8 and then he quotes them again and doubles up saying them in chapter 10. Do you think the Holy Spirit's got something on, the, on our case here? Wants us to understand something? Two pillars of the new covenant. I will put my laws upon their heart. Another way of saying that is conscience. God writes what pleases him in our hearts. And on their mind, I will write them. I could tell you the number of stories when some new Christians come to me with a question about, is it okay for a Christian to do this or that? And when I'm wise, when the Holy Spirit's got me, got me in a good place, I'll say, what do you think? What do you feel? And they'll give me a perfectly good reason why they're not going to do it anymore, because the Holy Spirit's already shown them that. I could stand there and quote Scripture, but you know what? The Holy Spirit's already got them ahead of their understanding of Scripture, because He's written something in their heart. I'm not saying they don't need to learn Scripture. Of course they do. But He's already written something in their heart about this. There's already a sense of right and wrong. What pleases God and what doesn't. 
I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. Instead of having a bad conscience, you can have a good conscience. The Holy Spirit through your conscience will correct you and direct you. Yeah? He'll guide you. Is that a good promise? It's a really good promise. And the second one is their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God does not remember our sins and lawless deeds against us. We are forgiven. He writes his laws in our hearts and minds. He makes our conscience alive. Not so we are constantly convicted of doing wrong, but that we are corrected and directed to do what is good and pleasing to him. He empowers us by his grace to live for his pleasure and for his honor. See, I know I've said it many times, but grace is more than forgiveness. Grace brings us to freedom. The Christian life is not one simply of getting everything wrong but being forgiven for it. It's learning to do well because God empowers us by his grace. That's the doctrine of grace. Now let me ask you a very direct question. Is what we just looked at there true of you? Because it either is or it isn't. And no amount of self-effort, self-improvement, self-reformation is involved in this. One thing is involved in these things becoming true. Faith in Jesus himself. He's the maker of the new covenant. The way to receive the new covenant is to ask him to become your Savior. Your Redeemer. To ask him to give you his help, his rescue, his forgiveness. And like I was saying last week, you know, you can have all sorts of things that Jesus will, will do for you and give you, but you know what you've got to do? You've got to be really, really simple. You just ask him. Stop asking. Jesus, please forgive me. Give me a clean conscience. Give me your laws in my mind, in my heart, so I, I get to know how to live in a way that honors you. These things are true for those who run to him and trust in him. Their past is put away. Now that's, a, that's different from being put, away, being put away for your past, isn't it? Yeah? You like that deal? Your past is put away. Their debt is cancelled. They can have a clean conscience. Now, of course they remember what they were and what they did, but they're no longer accused by it. They're no longer condemned by it. They're empowered to live a new life, motivated by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit to do what pleases God. Okay. So let me deal now with what I've referred to a few minutes ago, the, those attacks upon our conscience by the accuser, the devil. Accusation and condemnation. I'll explain to you again the difference between being corrected by the Holy Spirit and being, being condemned by the devil. The Holy Spirit will correct us when we're wrong, but it will always lead us to Jesus 
He'll always lead us to forgiveness. He'll always lead us to the grace of God to empower us. Right? But the devil wants to condemn you. He wants to throw you down on the dirt and give you a damn... Uh, sorry, very good kicking. <laughs> kind of deliberate there. You know, you, know the, you know the school bully, you know the kind of people who, you know, they won't just give you a tap, they, they, they want to demolish you. The devil wants to demolish you. Put you down and keep you down. One scripture says that we're not ignorant of his devices, his tricks and his schemes. The problem is I think some of us are. But just in case, let me name and blame some of them. The accusation and condemnation of the enemy generally follows, maybe I'm talking from my experience, but I'm sure it's common. Three things. Your past, your present, and your future. The devil wants to remind you about your past sins. Do you remember when you... Yes. Don't you feel bad about what on earth came of that then? That mess you left there. Huh? I don't want to write his script for it. But he accuses you about your past. And then in the present, the devil will tell you that you're really weak. That you've got these human appetites of, of, of sexual desire and, 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 uh, and ambition and, 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 and oh, the love of money. You're not, you don't handle the love of money well, do you? You know, and, you know All of these things that are still at work in you. And that you're open to temptation. You're like, you're like a coconut in the shy wake, waiting to be knocked off, you know? So I'll talk to you about your present condition. Then I'll talk to you about your future. So you think you're going to make it, do you? Yeah. I heard you sing on Sunday. I have decided to follow Jesus. Now turning back, now turning. Oh, really? The devil will tell you that you're weak, that you're, you're foolish. You're sure to fall and fail. Now, just as the Lord Jesus did when the devil tempted him in the desert, you need to have your answers ready. When the devil tried to trick and deceive and stumble, Jesus, Jesus fired straight back, it is written. And he quoted scripture. So let me suggest to you, it's not just helpful to you to know scripture, it's essential that you know scripture and that you can use it to defend yourself. So, would you excuse me while I preach to the devil? Thank you. I'm going for someone to give me a phone. Now, you see, a great, de a great device in debate, and I, I was taught to debate at school. They're bringing it back in now, do school debates and class debates. A great device in debate is you start off by agreeing with something of what your adversary has said. So-and-so is quite right when he says so-and-so. Right? You see it in the House of Commons. They'll kind of, it's called damning with faint praise. They'll say, my, my, my learned whatever but is, is quite right. And then they start to pick apart everything he said. Piece by piece. Here's what you do to overcome the attack of the enemy, the accusation of the enemy. You stop listening. You start talking. 
You preach the gospel. I say to the devil, but I'm teasing you a bit. You preach the gospel to yourself and let the devil have a listen. So here I go. This is my shot. This is me in the ring. Firstly, I don't defend myself. You're right. I sinned greatly in my past. I am still weak in myself. And I just might still fail in some way. But you want to talk to me about me. Well, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. So here is what is true, for it is the word of the Lord. It's not my opinion. It's not my feelings. First of all, my past. Jesus has saved me and forgiven me for my past. Jesus has made the new covenant in his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. And because of Jesus' blood, his death on the cross, God has cast all my sins behind his back. He has cast them into the depths of the sea. He's put them as far as the east is from the west. This is what the Lord says. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Here's another one. I've wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. So, listen, I am forgiven because of the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus for all the wrong that I have ever done. In this present time, in this now, He, Jesus, continues to save me. I am being saved by the life of Jesus. I am being kept by the grace and power of God. Jesus, even now in heaven, represents me and intercedes for me at the throne of God. He continues to be my saviour and my shepherd who will lead me and feed me and when necessary, he'll correct me because he loves me. And as to the future, he's my rock and my help. He will keep me. And even if I do give way and stumble, he will pick me up again. My shepherd will bring me home. I hold up these words of God as my hope. This is one job. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make Him a liar. His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins not for us only, but also for those of the whole world. And even if I fall, I will take up the words of the prophet Micah. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. I submit myself to God and to his word of truth. God has accepted me in Jesus. 
He calls me his child. He holds me in his hands. He keeps me by his power. God loves me. He has demonstrated that for all time by giving his son Jesus to die in my place on the cross so that I may be forgiven, justified, accepted. Nothing in all creation can separate God's children from his love. God is faithful to me. When I am faithless, he is faithful. I do not depend upon my own faith, but upon his faithfulness. I am not relying and having confidence upon my hold upon him, but his hold upon me. By his own will and wisdom and power and love, he is sanctifying me and he will receive me into his eternal kingdom. See, my God is truthful. I could add, unlike you. His word does not lie, and I rely upon his word of truth. So these things are true, not because I feel them or can hold them in my mind at any particular time, but because they are the unchanging words of the eternal God to his children. Eternal and unchanging. What he has accomplished for me in Jesus, his son, cannot be changed, cannot be broken. His covenant of grace and mercy is as unbreakable as his nature and name. He is the one who was and is and is to come. I think that has past, present and future covered, don't you? The Lord Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Excuse me. I'll try to save you from the explosion. The eternal God, we heard it earlier from Carmela reading. The eternal God is my refuge, my rock, and my salvation. He does not change. Therefore, I am saved. I am being saved, and I will be saved. His name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. My past is forgiven. I live now by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I depend upon his promised grace for every single one of my days ahead until I stand before him and see his face. So, devil, if you're still listening, Jesus is my Savior who has released me from my sins by his own blood. So, on your way. Today is not your day and tomorrow's not looking good either. (laughs) Scripture warns us not to be abusive to the devil. Not to be name-calling. All right? Like the Jehovah's Witnesses who sometimes come to my door. If all I do is listen, they'll take all day. But when I start to preach Jesus back, they don't stay around. When I quote scripture at them and they go, I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what to say about that one. They soon give up. 
The devil will not stay around to hear a sermon that long. And in that moment, listen folks, you will have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. Because you've preached the cross. What it is to you. What Jesus has done for you. Scripture says this, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can get cross if you want to. doesn't make any difference. You can stomp and shout if you want to. doesn't make any difference. Do you know what you need to do to, the, to, to defeat the devil? You need to preach the gospel. It's about the gospel. It's about the cross. It's about the blood of Jesus. It's about who God is. You need to preach the truth. Whether you get angry or not, it doesn't matter. It's not, nothing to do with it. You need to declare the truth of the gospel. You need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. So make this gospel of the grace of God yours. Own it. Say it. How many of you have been on a flight? Been on an aircraft? They give you the talk at the beginning. I've heard it so many times I could do it for them. In the unlikely event of the, the oxygen mask, will put yours on, then... You know, well, that is true of the gospel too. You need to preach it to yourself before you preach it to anybody else. You need this to be in your guts, in your heart, in your insides. And then if anybody gives you a nudge, it spills out. It's not like, oh, it's, oh I've got to think what to say to them now. No, you've got it all in there. You've preached it to yourself, you've preached it to the devil, you've, you've, you've you know, already today, so whoever comes along, they can get it as well. For free. Stop listening. Start talking. Stop listening to that accusing, condemning voice of the enemy. And preach the gospel to yourself, to him if you like as well. I'm kind of kidding with you. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Focus on the Lord Jesus on his cross. Remind yourself of the greatness and goodness of God. Encourage yourself in the Lord. But pursue good conscience. And if you, if you know you've gone, you've, you've gone astray, you've done something wrong, come to the Lord again and again for His pardon and for His power. He wants you to live in a good conscience because good conscience is directly link, linked to confidence. Being able to walk confidently with God through everything in life is connected to having a good conscience. So make sure you're keeping good conscience before Him and you defend your conscience against the attacks of the enemy. Jesus has made his once-for-all sacrifice for all his people, for all their sin, for all time, past, present, and future. Jude's little letter before Revelation we find in our Bibles finishes like this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord 
be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's stand up together. We need our musicians back sooner than I thought. If, uh, Andy, would you mind just telling them we need them back quicker? If they could hurry. Why don't you just lift your voice to the Lord yourself right now? Don't tell him how miserable you are. He doesn't, does he need that information? Tell him what you need from him. Forgiveness, grace, help, equipping, empowering. It's ours because it's promised us by the new covenant that Jesus bought with his blood. Your sins I will remember no more. My laws I will write in your heart and in your mind. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you now. You know, give yourself to him. Thank him for his incredible covenant of grace. Thank him that these promises are true about you. There's nothing you're going to do to make them happen. They are done because Jesus did it for you. What an amazing covenant. What an amazing standing in grace. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Oh, blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Jesus, forgiven, accepted, made perfect. It's begun, it started. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. You know, Amazing Grace, How Sweet and Sound is a good song, but it's an even better truth. To rest in our hearts. We have been saved by the grace of God through the sacrifice of Christ. Once for all. It is done. It is finished. Jesus, thank you.